Ready graphics? Ready theme? I'm Jesse Mullins. And I'm Lauren Milberger. And this is FYI, the Murphy Brown Podcast. Previously on the Murphy Brown Podcast. But in a way, it represented a culmination of, of, a, of, a, of a love and of a work that both Diane and I kind of invested a lot in. And on today's episode, we'll be talking about season two, episode one, The Brothers Silverberg. So we're in Sardellas, and Miles is now sitting next to a stunning woman who they are trying very hard to hide the fact that she is stunning because it is the amazing Jane Leaves who we love so, so much. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the reasons why I love her so much is because Jane is a comedian first and a gorgeous British woman second. And Audrey, as she is known in this episode and later, um, is in sitting there with giant glasses and like big 80s hair that's in this like side ponytail situation you know actually it says in the script which Mm. is interesting because i love this stuff Mm -hmm. that she wears hip melrose style glasses (laughs) exactly yeah they are melrose (laughs) avenue is where you would buy you know the most cutting edge stuff and so that was a definite statement now i don't i you must have picked this up by now but if you haven't there, there are two things. One is um, I, 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 Jane is hilarious, and I had worked with Jane before on a on a, on a syndicated show. At which point, when I worked with Jane, that was on Throb. Exactly. Wow, that's obscure. And and so I'd worked with I'd met Jane on Throb, and the most and 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 I was amazed when I met Jane on Throb to learn that her roommate was a young actress who I had worked with on Another World, the soap opera in New York. That actress being Faith Ford. So Faith and Jane were roommates. And that's how we wound up reaching out to Jane for this. Now, my understanding was that they were dating at the time? Jeez, I I thought the dating started after. But I'm not sure about that. No, it's possible that she was already dating Grant. I can't remember. I, I don't remember what the timing was. But yes, indeed, they wound up dating for for quite a quite a while. Uh, we we just absolutely adore Jane. She, as you say, she's hilarious, and we were in love with this bit that I'll let you set up here. But the bit, the the the, the Audrey Cohen bit, uh, I I don't think we could stop laughing during the week every time Jane did it. So quick story, uh, when I first moved to New York, uh, I was riding the subway, possibly maybe for the first time, uh, and I look up and I see a commercial for Audrey Cohen College. <laughs> <laughs> so is Barnett, is is she named after the college? <laughs> I, I mean, it's not, it has a different name now, but. I, I, I have no idea. I have, I have no idea. I, I, I think I doubt it. I I don't know. I don't know. For me, again, Diane just has a pretty big fan repertoire for Jewish stuff. And I think that her point was, remember, he was going to set up a couple of dates for the two of them, kind of girls they would like. They both were hot for, you know, Amy Turlow, you know. These, none of these things are accidental. So, this, so Audrey Cohen was the girl that, you know, that, that uh, Miles got for himself. And presumably he was going to get another Audrey Cohen for, for Josh. A nice Jewish girl. 
<laughs> exactly. I mean, Miles is conservative. Miles, you know, Miles is going to get a nice Jewish girl, you know, for his brother. And then Murphy stepped in. Well, there is a line that got cut from broadcast. I can't I can't tell you how how much it hurt me that that line was cut. It was the funniest which I love. So it good. was the most daring line that we did at the time, and it got cut. Uh, he, he calls Murphy a shiksa, guys. <laughs> <laughs> his parting shot, his parting shot when he thinks that, <laughs> that Josh has done the unspeakable by dating Murphy as he's leaving, he says, I've got one word <laughs> for you, shiksa. And we loved Later on, when Jerry moves in with Murphy, Miles kind of brings it up again. So it does sort of come back because he uh, he tells Jerry that he's hostile because Murphy's a shiksa. Well, again, I, again, I think it has to do with how long you're that, what, what season was that? Uh, that was season four. Yeah. So the longer you're on the air and the more successful you are, they cut you more and more slack. But as you pointed out, if the network was nervous about us using the NRA, logo they were also very nervous about us making a shit no, so it, it wasn't cut for time i assumed it was cut for oh, time did no. no way that was cut for time it was too well I, I i shouldn't say that because it required going to the door and requiring going to the door because he was said it as, as he as he turned back from the door i remember that and and that does take a couple of seconds so it's possible there was a time thing there but I'll bet you that the network said you can lose that. We'll be we'll we'll be all right if you lose. I mean, that. I do remember in middle school, I said that word in class, and my math teacher was Jewish, and and she got really upset with me. And I didn't think it was a bad word. At least in my whole household, it wasn't a bad he, word. Well, uh, I mean, I guess it can have a different connotation to different people. Exactly, and it's not a it isn't a bad word, but but there are a lot of people that are hypersensitive about it, in my opinion. And from, we find out that she is from the British Embassy. Her name is Audrey Cohen. And oh, that outfit. It is, what's interesting is the colors are very Murphy. It's this, yeah, it's this like rust orange with a black skirt. It's not styled the way Murphy would, but the colors are very reminiscent. So yes, Jane is sitting there as Audrey. And just by the way Audrey is sitting, we know that Jane equals punchline. Um, we know something's going to happen with this woman. We just don't know what. And what's great about this is she and John Tenney, who played Josh, are still very early in their careers. Very right? early. Very. John still in school at this point? Yeah, I was confused about that. His wiki says that he graduated from Juilliard the year after. He was just out. I, well, or I think he might have been just out. Yeah. It could have been one of his first gigs. No question. One of the great things about Jane Leaves is like this role is fairly early in her career. And yet at this point, a lot of people already recognized her for these character roles that she would do. Uh, for example, I recognized her from an episode of Murder, she wrote, as we all know, another great love of my life. And she was in, I believe, a season four episode where she plays the unsuitable girlfriend to the son of a wealthy British family that happened to end up knowing Jessica Fletcher's twin cousin emma mcgill anyway she is ridiculous she's playing kind of a bimbo she's got this big crazy 80s hair and she's surrounded by all these insane characters including a very big character that uh, angela lansbury is playing and she holds her own in these scenes 
Yeah. And I also knew her, her voice really well as the ladybug from James and the giant peach. Oh, really? So if you look at this, like all of these credits and more are all from before Frasier hit. Oh, no, this is way before. This is, yeah, way before Frasier. But, you know, one of the things that I, 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 you guys should check me on, but my recollection when I, from working with her on Throb was that she was originally a dancer. She's trained as a dancer and is a pro dancer. And was tra- when we did Throb, was transitioning into acting. She did sketches for Benny Hill, I believe. Oh, that's right. You're right. She had done something for Benny Hill. That's right. That's right. Yeah, she and she has a lot of great guest gigs. She was in Blossom, My Two Dads, Red Dwarf, and all of this was right before Murphy Brown in this episode in 1989. Um, she had those 48 episodes of Throb as Prudence Anne. Were there 48 episodes of Throb? Yeah. No kidding. I didn't realize that. And also in that that Washington Post article, which is just glowing about the episode, um, there's a quote where they say, indeed, everybody in the cast appears to be at ramming speed, including a savory surprise. Jane leaves as Audrey Cohen, a blind date Miles imports from the British embassy who lends herself to a ruse with hilarious eagerness. Oh, that's great. I didn't know that, but that's great. Is that Tom Shales or something? Yes, it was. He knows Uh, what he's talking about. Smart guy. Smart guy. We assume, based on this this ruse that has been set up by Miles, that based on previous sitcom tropes, that the date won't be able to play along very well. But Audrey is all game for this ruse, and she has a story for every situation. So it's just, to me, right away, it's the most hilarious thing in the world that Miles, in order to scrape up a date, to impress his brother, has to go on a blind date with somebody. In other words, Miles doesn't have anybody, which we know, uh, which we assume. So Miles is in jeopardy right away. He's in in trouble because he's bringing a blind date on to impress everybody here. And we find out that they maybe don't have the best fictional relationship. (laughs) Now, in contrast... Murphy's outfit, so youthful. It's so white. I wrote, oh, wow, so much bow. She's like in a video for the Go-Go's. Yes, it's like Go-Go's, bangles, fun. And definitely not her era of fun. No, very 1987. (laughs) Yes, like Teen Vogue, Tiger Beat, found an outfit, just tried to make it happen. Well, I have to say that that was one of the only things that threw me for a loop. Um, I, I, you know, I, that was one area that I did not go into personally, uh, you know, as the, as the director and as the producing director, I did not, you know, Candace and Diane and Bill Hargate, um, you know, did all the costumes together and, you know, they all have impeccable taste. And of course, here was an interesting challenge to find Murphy outside of her realm of comfort, you know. And, and not being normal Murphy because she was smitten. Uh, but that outfit is so outrageous. Yes, and the outfit, it is insane. And to, to compliment Candace, she looks young. Like, she looks amazing. The outfit, though, it looks like she went to a newsstand and just flipped through a magazine and then just tried to recreate an outfit she found. Well, that was the idea. Yes, of course, that she's trying to look. She's trying to look jeune fille. She's trying to look too, too young. Yeah, yeah. 
It's a suffice it. It's a crazy outfit. And also, their entrance is they they walk in in this romantic, blissful peace. She's holding a white rose. Josh says, "Sorry, we are so late. The sunset was so beautiful. We had we just had to stop, look at it." And Miles just shatters the illusion and asks what she's holding. And she goes, "It's a rose, Miles." Yeah, Miles tends to act like a jerk when he feels threatened. Yes. Well, because he's reverting to more childish reaction, which is exactly what happens when a sibling is around. So it's absolutely supporting this relationship that we've been watching. And Audrey just starts going for it. And (laughs) she takes this opportunity to say, oh, that, you know, he's never brought her flowers before. And Audrey takes this opportunity to just start going for it in her character study. And she says, he never once brought me flowers, but he did get her a ficus when Aunt Penny died. (laughs) That's the most absurd line. And Uh. Miles does this thing where he just does this side eye, realizing what he signed up for in Audrey without realizing it. Like, he sees what's going to end up (laughs) happening with this woman. (laughs) That's right. We didn't have that word side-eye at that time, but that's exactly what he does. That's right. Yeah, he definitely created side-eye for this moment. So Miles is trying to talk wine, and he's using all of this false bravado and trying to say, oh, I think we should choose this one. And of course, Josh just swings in saying, oh, no, 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 actually, this one, um, I, I believe it's a gold medal winner. And Miles, youngest child slams the menu shut and just refuses to let anyone else look at the wine list so that he can order. And Audrey swoops in, just be like, oh, he can be like this. He's so stubborn. He drove around for hours, refusing to ask for directions, which of course opens the door for Josh to jump in and tell embarrassing stories about his younger brother. Which, you know, you never want to be uh, told in front of a work colleague. Nope. And it's everything that Miles didn't want. It's everything he's trying to prove he isn't. And during this little exchange, we're just watching Murphy just trying to hold on to this youthful evening that she has curated for herself. And she's just pushing the menu farther and farther away from her so that she can read the print. Um, and, And Josh romantically offers to share two pastas between them. And she says, oh, that's a great idea. And maybe... In a place like this, you'd think that maybe they'd have four or five excellent pastas rather than 20 of them. Then maybe they wouldn't have to be so tiny. (laughs) Which, of course, Miles and ruins by saying, Murphy can't see. I can see Miles. (laughs) Well, now, it's interesting. Now, did you, you, because you guys watched this when you were so young. So did you, did you realize that, you know, that getting... Getting farsighted is part of what happens to older people. Yeah, I did. Um, because my dad was so farsighted that as a as a tour guide, he could actually spot the wildlife for his tourists to help them see things in Alaska. And he had these big bifocals, and my mom had trifocals. So I grew up very aware that as you got older, your vision changed quite dramatically. Right. I think I just knew from TV. Exactly. It changes and it changes in that direction. Doesn't happen to absolutely everybody, but happens to a lot of people. And that's, of course, why a lot of older people, you know, wear even the drugstore version of reading glasses. The readers. You know, everybody pulls that out when they get the menu, you know. So 
And Murphy has just hit that age where it's starting. But, you know, really the very, very interesting thing about the structure of this scene, this scene and what's so wonderful about it and was part of the challenge even of the staging and how to, who to put in what chair and how to arrange this. But was that both of them are getting hit. Both of them are losing. Both of them are taking shots from, you know, without it, without it being intentional. So it's not like, you know, Miles is the one that's getting all the pies in his face, and it's not like, or Murphy getting all the pies in her face. The two of them, even though they're on opposite sides of the equation, and they're in, they are each other's antagonists in the scene, both of them are losing because they're both with these wild card people in a way. So it's kind of just really, for me, fun to watch them both suffer in the scene. It's not a night that goes well for anybody. <laughs> It is not. And it, everything is ruined um, when Audrey packs the punch of, oh, my mom's 41. And she is just like, she is the death to the party. And then she turns just to send it home by chastising Miles to be sure to send a card, not like last year. You know, one of the good things that, that's going on here, uh, which may not be quite apparent today, is that we could do this. That those jokes, because Candace was a 41-year-old who was not hiding from being a 41-year-old beauty, a 41-year-old woman who had made her name as an ingenue. And for most women, as they aged as actresses, as they aged at that time, you, you, you know, the last thing you want is anybody talking about your age. And it was all about yeah. hiding one's age and being perpetually, you know, 35 at the outside, right? At the outside. And for, but Candy wasn't like that. She was not vain and she was not ashamed. And Diane was all about owning it. And so making jokes, being willing to make jokes about it and let Candace Bergen be the, the named receiver of a joke about getting older that that was part of what made her um made this story a special story this was this was kind of groundbreaking just like i keep harping on on these miles jewish lines these were not things you got to see and and, and for a woman to make fun of her own aging process as it were again was not something you saw uh, especially not somebody who you know had to I mean, most actresses are worried about remaining a commodity. I mean, this show might have not lasted a second season or might not have lasted a third season. And Candace would have to go out and, and get jobs. So you don't want the whole world knowing what your age is, you know. But uh, but but Candace and, and Diane were very uh, upfront about that. And so it made it possible. And. I would also say that it's important to have these jokes and all, I mean, honestly, all the types of jokes that we talk about on this podcast that were progressive on this show, because there's a, it's that saying of if you're laughing, you're listening. Mm -hmm. Like not only that, but it's also, it's normalizing these conversations because you can sit down and have the attitude of it's just a comedy. We're laughing, we're having a good time, but you also, you gain power back from something if you can laugh at it and that's what this is doing exactly and there's something about women of a certain age being willing to be that certain age 
rather than hiding their age or saying, you know, I'm 25 for the 10th time or, you know, one of those things. It's, it's have it, having it not be, well, now that you're 41, you're someone's mom. It's for me, the fact that Murphy does become a mom at that age, it was really important to me. My mom had me at 39 and I had older parents. And this was one of the only times as a kid that I saw that quality of my family in that way. Um, I was just saying to a friend the other day that I I got spoiled with leads over 30, like female leads over 30, because we had this and we had Murder, She Wrote and Keeping Up Appearances. And and we were just watching Ghostbusters and talking about the fact that Sigourney Weaver was 35 years old and they were not trying to make her someone in her 20s. Well, that's it. And it's nothing to be ashamed of. And that's exactly the same thing. Instead of Miles being a cute Jewish type who you play with an Italian last name, which was basically was the trope of the time. Right. There's no shame in Miles being Jewish. And guess what? We can even make jokes. Yep. Because it's important that we not only know that she's 41 because we know that, but that the show actually calls it out. That way we can't we can't reason. You know, she looks young, so it's indeterminate. No, it's determined. She is 41 years old. So we've talked a lot about on the show how Murphy Brown really sort of laid the groundwork for the kind of entertainment that we really seek out, whether consciously or subconsciously, because it was about something. It was funny, but it was about something, whether it's something personal like here or something political. And eventually, you know, this kind of sitcom, obviously, as we know, kind of faded out of fashion and also cutting of sitcoms, you have less time. And when you have less time, character, unfortunately, ends up being cut. So mm-hmm. we were gravitated towards, for me, it was dramedy because mm-hmm. it had that sort of balance. And totally. Yeah. Going back to the word spoiled, as Jesse brought up before, <laughs> you know, not only were we spoiled to older, mature women as our future, but also towards wanting more out of our situation comedy. Mm-hmm. And our entertainment. So we end at Sardella's on a less than positive note, but have a really quick cut to the office um, in Murphy's office where Miles is already waiting, sitting in a chair for Murphy to arrive. And this is basically the first time this episode and season uh, that we see a woman in a really big color. It's super saturated. I love it. And Murphy red. Yeah, that Murphy red. And And she's actually, it's funny, um, there's this very famous appearance by the cast on Pat Sajak that had become, so I should say infamous. It, the, it's a little bit, I think, in the book, and I'd heard about it, and I didn't quite know exactly what happened, but I found recently uh, a partial clip of some of it, and Candace is wearing this exact same outfit, including the earrings. <laughs> and so when I watched the episode, because I would just seen that, I went, oh, this is either her outfit or... She just went, you know, from set to, um, which happens, you know. So it's not interview. just the evening gowns that Candace has done this with. I, I think there's a <laughs> lot of clothes that, that she's brought from home and maybe taken have. from the costume. I mean, you know, she could just, she's Candace Bergen. Yeah, like, who's going to say no? The other thing I really like about this look is that in this second season, they've now really allowed the texture of her hair to, to fly free it's like this natural wave and it just gives this impression of being very free and easy and i don't it might be just me i just as a girl with stick straight hair i just go ooh, texture <laughs> um so anyway miles is sitting there and the second they see each other they immediately both start trying to apologize oh, that's great and 
I, we talk about this a lot, but it is just seeing, you really understand what these people mean to each other in this moment. And Miles kind of wins out and he, he wants to apologize and explains that he is having trouble being the boss and having that crossover into his personal life. And I think it's an incredibly powerful and mature statement from him. It's really well articulated. It's a lovely um, mature we, scene. Right? I, I love this scene. It's so short, but I really love it. And it says a lot about who they are now. And Murphy gives back that she understands that he might not want anyone to know that he once had a blanket named Boo Boo. And and just for <laughs> me, uh, I realize I should I should drop in. This scene is really rather new to me. Because I was used to watching the first run syndication cut, which cuts a lot more mm-hmm. than the TV land cuts. And this scene is not in it at all. So Miles kind of ends this by saying that he is trying to say that a man and a woman should be able to see their relationship play out without any interference and that he accepts that. No, he encourages it. <laughs> He's really trying. <laughs> And Murphy, in kind, says that she can accept the age thing, but she doesn't want it to affect her and Miles' relationship. And that is so huge when we talk about the the maturity that we've found them in. Because Murphy doesn't have to, and she gives him the opportunity to say no. She literally gives him the power in this conversation. Yeah, and I, I just want to double down, you know, because even when I referenced this earlier, I didn't make it clear, because I think in a, you know, in a traditional sitcom relationship, the emphasis would be on you've become, you a person, you're my friend, my friend is more important to me, but that's not what she says. She says our professional relationship is more important. And, and in a way, I think that's a bigger give. That's a bigger gift to Miles because the point is that she didn't take him as valuable to begin with. And what he needed to prove was not that he was a human being. What he needed to prove was that he, though he was a kid and very young, he was a, he, he could carry his weight and be of value on FYI, this important show, which we saw as 60 Minutes, which was an important show, a very important show in the national conversation at that time. The level of its importance you can't even imagine today by comparison when we have so many other, you know, outlets. So the point is, she's saying she's giving Miles his graduation diploma here. I don't. I need you on FYI. I need you as my producer. To me, that's huge. It's a huge. It is huge. It it reminds me of when we recorded the morning show. Mm. We talked about that moment between Corky and Murphy of this, like, I accept you as a colleague quality. And we realized that the arcs in season one were really Murphy and Corky and Murphy and Miles. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And watching their relationship grow from the beginning of that season into this one. And this conversation now is so much different than it would have been Mm -hmm. in season one. Yeah, I mean, not only is it such a strong episode, it's such a great way to just sort of dive right into season two because of what it says about Murphy and Miles' relationship, even though Mm -hmm. it wasn't filmed first. Uh, Are you saying that this aired as Mm -hmm. number one in season two? Yes. Uh, Yeah, no. So um, the first episode that you guys filmed for season two was the memo that got away. 
That sounds right to me. I don't remember the decision. Um, I think basically, yeah, I just think that I don't I don't remember um, the memo. Was that because of a fax machine thing? So No. So the, the memo that got away was based on the whole Brian Gumbel uh, memo and a uh, right. high school student finds this memo that Murphy wrote about her colleagues and kind of blackmails her to try oh, to, you know, get what he wants great, or he's going to publish the story. He's a great kid. When you do that, you should do your homework on, on who he is in case you don't know. He's a, he's a well-known novelist. Oh, oh, interesting. Yeah. Cool. Check it oh, out. Cool. Look him okay. up. But anyway, uh, and he was just, he was a Yale kid at the time. He was an undergraduate when we, when we gave him that job. So that, that's, that was very cool. Jumping ahead. But back to this, I just think they looked at this episode and said it's very strong and go with the, we go with strength. I think that's what it was. Yeah, I mean, this episode has more jokes per capita than I feel like last season. And I was laughing mm-hmm. like nonstop. Well, and what's interesting in that Washington Post article is it actually says uh, the episode highlights the Murphy Brown character who is second only to Murphy herself in appeal, Miles Silverberg, babyface executive producer of the FYI primetime news show. <laughs> mm, mm. In fact, oh, you know, and when we interviewed Norm, he felt that season two was really when you guys start really got cooking. Yeah, yeah, I feel that way, too. So we cut to the townhouse. Josh and Murphy have come home from a date. They've been to a movie. They're talking about the cinematography. Mm. And and this reminded me that when I was a young kid watching sort of, you know, adult fair, uh, I definitely thought that this is what people did. This is what adults did. You know, you went to the movies and you talked a lot about the cinematography. Yes. Well, and I even realized that I have been saying referring to cinematography as it was like watching a picture. And I don't think I realized that I probably stole that from this. <laughs> and you know, they went to a smart film, you know, they went to a foreign film. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Mm. Yes. No, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Very, very. I'm, th- I'm envisioning like lush, like Chinese v- vistas, you know? Yeah. Yeah, these are the days before multiplexes. I mean, they were going to some. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe the multiplex was there, but they're going to an art house, no question. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And Murphy's wearing what I sort of considered sort of dating Murphy, very sort of feminine, flowy, tied skirt again with the earth tones and the browns. Mm. Um, And we think that they're alone, but then we (laughs) see that Miles is there. And I, I yes. really love this reveal. I love the fact that you're really just thinking, oh, they're out on a date. And then, nope, Miles just walks on through. Uh, Murphy's not happy. She gives Josh a look like, no, st- you know, we want some alone time. Well, they've been uh, dealing with him all night, clearly. Yeah, well, we find out that Miles has been on a, was on their date last night. You know, and he's only in town for about a week. Yeah. Um, so he realizes it's time to turn on the news, time to get informed. He sits in the middle of the couch, not at the end of the couch, the middle of the couch, and pats both sides for them to sit next to him. Come on, come on, come on. I mean, this, this entire scene, for me, the staging in this entire scene, I, I worked really hard on this, and this is, for me, one of the proudest things, you know. Barnett, a little behind the scenes of how we record these podcasts. So when we do our recaps, we actually do them separately from each other, and then share our notes with each other as we're going through. So oftentimes, when I'm watching a section that I know I won't be in charge of recapping, I'll usually just take the notes of the things that stood out to me, knowing that Lauren's going to take care of the, the plot line. And 
so for this section, the only, most of the notes that I have are all Grant Shaw's physicalization. It is amazing. Like the way when he's sitting on the couch, he goes, come here, come here, come here, come here. And, and I just wrote in so much banister acting. <laughs> uh, Barnett, I know according to the Murphy Brown book that it says that you actually direct a grant to uh, play with the banister, so to speak. Can you talk a little bit about that direction? <laughs> Absolutely. I just saw that long walk up there. This was such an opportunity. And I, yeah, I, I didn't remember that that was in the book. But yeah, I asked Grant to play with the banister. And I saw that as an opportunity for the classic. He, at one point, he, he runs his finger along the banister, the, the, the uprights of the banister, um, the way a kid would with a stick, you know, and a picket fence. It's just such a childish gesture, uh, killing time, stalling as he walks. And then when they, you know, when they finally say that he's not leaving, that Josh, you know, Josh isn't, um, that they want to be alone, basically. You know, Miles sinks to his knees. You know, he's been, you know, they they want to talk to him and he leans on the banister. And And then... And then when he takes the hit, he sinks to his knees and tries to talk to them intimately over it. But when he gets the big hit, and this is where I, 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 you know, I just said to Miles, it's a crucifixion. Give me a crucifixion. You're being, this is killing you. You're being crucified. And he puts his arms on the length, the extent of the banister. <laughs> like he's on the cross. It's the ultimate guilt thing. And, uh, I, uh, you know, I just, it's shameless. That's what it was. It was shameless banister acting. Uh, and Grant, you know, God bless him, went, you know, committed to it. And, and the, uh, and, and the writers loved it when they saw it. And, you know, I'm sure I was, I'm sure I was uh, looking forward to it all day, you know, as we staged it, waiting for the writers to get down there to, to show off that bit. And also the bit of when he spins around, when he's looking for, which is the best way to get out and either way. He looks like a dog looking, you know, turning in a circle before sitting down. I love that. I just wrote in my notes, spin, spin. And the best part is that it's it's coming from a place of truth. It's not just the actor going through the motions to be funny. No, I mean, he's trying to figure out, do I go out that way or do I go out this way? Neither one is. They're both bad and I, he's stuck. He's just stuck. It, he's flustered by the truth of the situation. He's flustered by the fact mm-hmm. that he turned around. And um, for those of you catching up, he's flustered that he turns around and sees his brother and Murphy in a very romantic you know, situation with his hand on her face and she's lovingly looking at him and he realizes that he's interrupted and he doesn't yes. know which way to go. He's like a dog and he goes one way and that's not good and does that way and he just can't sort of figure it out. And it's funny because it comes out of truth. Yes. And you think he's going to leave out the front door, but he goes right up the stairs. <sighs> he tells Josh to let him know. Yeah, that I'm sure that's how Murphy felt, that sigh that you gave there, Jesse. <laughs> he asked Josh to tell tell him when he's going to be you know, leaving. And, you know, Scooter, I don't think I'm going to need that ride. And Murphy and Josh sort of, you know, walk towards the banister and, and, and Miles, you know, so, you know, that's a really big assumption here. Uh, but Murphy lets him know that he doesn't need the ride. Right. He's going to defend Murphy from Josh. It's, 
Ooh, it hits. Yeah, and I, Barnett, I just really love this camera angle. It was such a great choice to have them from above. You know, it makes him feel sort of like a child. They're looking, you know, up at him, but also the way that Murphy comes into the shot and, you know, he doesn't need the ride. Yes, when she steps in, well, that was the one pickup, you know, and those things were unusual, you know, and and in those days we were entirely on uh, on our dollies. So pulling, we didn't have an extra handheld camera just sitting around. So we would have to, after the show, pull a camera off and take it up there and walk it up the steps and put it on tripod. So it wasn't a normal thing to do. It was extra. But uh, in those, you know, in that circumstance, but it just needed it. It just needed Murphy stepping into that shot, looking right up at him, seeing all their eyes just saying, no, Miles, we're here. Look, It's our night. Uh, yeah, it was right. It was the right thing to do. Even it was, our, it was breaking the. Uh, Breaking the convention, the, 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 the third three-wall convention. But that time it seemed, it seemed important. So good, Barnett. It's so good. Oh, it's so it good. It just really you know, punctuates the joke. Uh, so uh, this scene, of course, fades uh, out. But originally, we, as we talked about, Miles goes to the door and, and refers to Murphy as a shiksa. <laughs> I just have one word to say to you, Josh. Shiksa. And leaves. Big laugh. We'll never see it. Uh, cut to Murphy's townhouse late at night. It's very dark. Um, the phone is ringing. Uh, this is a convention of sort of 80s and 90s, which we will not see anymore. Because- yeah, but now you guys, you guys have, t- you have text. No, but you have text messages. When you cut to a telephone, it tells you who's calling. You know, we didn't have those things. <laughs> <laughs> also, no one uses voicemail anymore. Unfortunately, that nope. is a thing of the past. Uh, so, um, we hear Miles, you know, he's calling to see how everything is. He's sort of checking in and Murphy has to come down to get to the voicemail her home. I don't know. So yeah, I'm not sure to... I buy that, but you yeah. know, what can I say? Yeah, this is the <laughs> longest tape ever. So it's really dark and Murphy kind of comes down. She's in this robe. She's in the robe. I love this robe. This robe to me is iconic Murphy. It is from all the mm-hmm. publicity pictures of when she found out she was pregnant, when the stick was blue. She's worn it through yeah. most of the series, maybe not the last couple seasons, but when I think of Murphy and her amazing pajamas and her nightwear, I think of this robe. I want this robe. Same. I'm always looking for this robe, I feel like, when I'm shopping. Please, someone, help us find this robe. Give us this mm-hmm. robe. Just But two yeah. of them, not like we have to share a robe. It's not like the podcast of the traveling <laughs> robe. <laughs> <laughs> that's great <laughs> um and so uh Mur- murphy answers the phone she pretty much tells miles you know not not to come over but then the doorbell rings and of course it's miles he was calling from his car phone also what does this car phone look like yeah so th- this because is this is this is fairly early car phone i know? remember having a very early quote-unquote car phone in my family in well, probably was like the early aughts. And that was the like the bag phone where you dialed on top of the, the phone itself and you, you like ripped it off and had a spirally yeah. cord and it plugged exactly. into the cigarette lighter. Otherwise, it didn't exactly. work. And yeah. if that was the height of technology in the early aughts, then what was a 1989 modest car phone? Because it's not like he's super rich. Miles says that he, there's something he's come to say and you think they're going to have it out and have a big conversation. And... And you find out that, no, he's just going to give her the Poindexter interview, which Murphy knows is just him, like, stalling and making him excuse to, like, check in on them. And she says, she says yep. something really great. She says, we've been through too much this year to hold anything back. 
Oh, it's so it's really good. really good. She, you know, she's like have an honest moment here. You know, you're again. Mm-hmm. His friendship means his friendship and and being her colleague means a lot to her now. And then you know he says he feels kind of silly, but and then Miles slash Grant goes into one of these amazing monologue meltdowns that Grant is amazing for. And he hates that. It is a classic. I hate that you're dating my brother. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I try to be big about it. I try to be a sport, but it's not working, Murphy. I'm a small and petty sport. little person. Petty little person. <laughs> and he goes, you're mine. Mine, 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 mine. And he just like slams his finger into the couch. Mine, mine, mine. Oh. And, and Murphy is just miles. She's yeah. really taken back. She had a grip. Yeah, it's the way that she says miles. Like she's not upset with him. She's just sort of taken aback. Like it's some sacrilegious invasion. So vulnerable. And only Grant. That really was trademark Grant. The ability to do the tantrum that way. To have this little boy and vulnerable and still lovable tantrum that way is, you know, really Grant's contribution. Fabulous. And Miles immediately apologizes. Oh, he's mortified. He realizes what he's done. He gets down, gets down on his knees, gets down on her level and leans on the arm of the, uh, of the, that big fat arm of the sofa. Yeah, and, and jumping ahead just a little bit, she has this line where she says she feels like the only tree in a kennel. That's the funniest line in the world. Yeah, and I I realize that I, again, to this day, refer sometimes to myself as I'm not the tree that you piss on. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure I also got that from Murphy Brown. <laughs> um, but what I what I love in this is that she... It's such a unique relationship between the two of them and how it's grown. And she doesn't just jump to chastising him. Like she really listens to him and reasons with him and treats it like, okay, yeah, like it's like it's a job. Like let's let's go put on a cup a, a pot of coffee and just work on this and talk it out. And I think it says a lot about where they are now, looking at even when they were beginning to bond in the first season and she called him Scoop. It was a very like older sister kind of, you know, maternal kind of energy, whereas now they they're speaking and working together as equals. And she respects his feelings and and the impact that her actions have on him as an equal. You know, Murphy says they have a real problem that they need to, you know, put on some coffee and talk about it. Uh, But Miles figures it's late. You know, he's got to get back to sleep, sleep, you know, sort of almost in air quotes, and, and Murphy goes, Josh isn't here. He was so worried about Miles, he couldn't concentrate. <laughs> I did not get that as a kid. I just thought that it, r- r- it rhymes with consummate. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought about that. Sometimes I watch these shows and I still have a child's brain. Like I remember the things I thought when I watched it. I just realized that when you said it, and it makes me so oh, happy. okay. <laughs> So, of course, at this moment, the doorbell rings again. And kudos to them. They don't seem to realize who's going to be coming through the door. And sweet big brother Josh arrives with a where the hell have you been? And I just love, I love Josh so much in these moments. Because he is so worried for his baby brother. And you find out he's been looking for him ever since he left. Terrified that he might not be okay. Like, you see this older sibling. And the way he talks to him... And the way he talks about him, you kind of get the idea that he 
kind of feels like he raised him a little bit. Yeah, I was thinking about that too as we were rewatching this because because obviously we don't know this now, and this happened, you know, after Diane left, so she didn't create this canon. But we do find out that their parents were these sort of you know hippie going a lot of you know protests, and and so they probably weren't home a lot. Mm-hmm. Or maybe and they it, were in the van, you know? And yeah. so you could see Josh sort of always taking care of Miles like a parent. Yeah, and I, it makes me think a lot of my sisters who who were older than me and definitely felt like they they raised me um, in certain respects. And so you, you can also see that in Miles' attitude toward Josh and, and this dynamic of always, I mean, they don't even have that big of an age difference, but if that was the dynamic, you can see how much even more of an authority figure that Josh got to be. And thus, Miles's reaction to him. And he just responds back to him with an, I could be here. And I, I love the fact that in the middle of this, before Josh goes back to it, he just sees Murphy and goes, you look great. <laughs> yeah. And then Murphy is like, oh, oh, yes. Oh, thank oh she you. Loves, she's yes. just like preening in the corner, just loving it. And... And this is where we start hearing a little bit of this thing. So Miles says, I don't have to answer to you. And Josh says, this is just like the time you ran away from home. And Miles just snaps a little bit. And he says, stop telling those stories. Stop trying to take care of me. Stop trying to outdo me. Stop being six feet tall. Just stop it. And I love that because he actually has some valid points that he's making in this moment. And then he just devolves into things that Josh can't have anything to do with. Yeah, the six feet tall thing reminds me because <laughs> coming from a Jewish household, <laughs> We're not known for our height. Um, and my mother would sometimes go, well, you know, we once had a relative who was six feet tall. I mean, I come from a fairly medium-sized family as well. So I recognize my dad was was like 5'11 and a half. Mm-hmm. And I just remember being like, oh, he's not quite six feet tall. So Josh responds to this with just the sweetest, most, most heartfelt Scooter. And the way he says Scooter breaks my heart. Mm. It's so full of love and care. And he li- he really heard him when he said that. Like, he didn't hear the words as much as he heard the sentiment. And that's so meaningful in a caring relationship. And he says, I'm not trying to outdo you. I'm just trying to keep up with you. Oh. And he says, I'm always going to look out for you. I love you, man. Mm. And at that point... I just typed, I got to call my sisters. It got me every time. The bro talk. I have so, oh, it's just so moving and it's so sweet. And you see how much they love each other. And we get a response of, I'm an idiot. And this is where we get their little back and forth of, no, you're not. You're my, my main man, my top guy, my bro. And then they do their little lifelong, I guess, ritual of this like scream and hair fluff. (laughs) and it's very endearing if probably very loud to be next to and they decide that they're gonna go off into the night so as they're leaving they they turn around and offer for her to tag along as well and she says lauren how did you know i wanted to say this i knew i knew you needed to say this (laughs) i'm sick of the silverberg brothers (laughs) (laughs) um and what i love is that um Josh kisses Murphy on the forehead and he goes, I've got to do this. I'll call you tomorrow. She's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's something the way that Candace Bergen uh, says, yeah, there's so much layer to it. It's like a Sorkin. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
There's a poetry to an American yeah. And there are so many of them. Mm-hmm. What I love that I have discovered living in different parts of the country are the the way that yeah can be used to find accents. Um, so when I moved to New York from the Midwest, one of the few ways that I carried a Midwestern accent over was in the way I said yeah, like, oh yeah, oh you know. Oh yeah. <laughs> Um, very, very, that very Fargo accent. And when I came back to visit after living in New York for a while, people told me they heard that I had a New York accent based on the way I said, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I know this has come up as well with, uh, with things that you say in your native accent when we talk about those, those little tells yeah. and yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's actually, there's a YouTube video that's called the yeah cut of Fargo. And it's pretty much just all phone conversations that of Francis McDormand and you totally know what's happening in the conversation based on the way different ways she says yeah I've seen that and but it's funny you know having a New Jersey New York accent all my life although I'm trained uh particularly living staying here and living here all my life I retain a bit still of it and I I never thought about the regional way in which I say yeah until now you kind of blew my mind there Jesse oh yeah <laughs> it's what I'm here for Eldon bursts through the door with a, hey there, hi there, ho there. I do love before Eldon arrives, though, Murphy just goes, what just happened? <laughs> yes. I know. That's, I think that's a great moment. That's a great <laughs> yes. moment, her alone. And after he does his big entrance, he just goes, I hate that bathrobe. Eldon, you are wrong. He is wrong. We love that bathrobe. Mm-hmm. We are here for that bathrobe. Team that bathrobe. And she's asking him what he's doing there. And... <laughs> His response is, two guys are leaving here in the middle of the night and you're asking me questions. So we find out that Eldon has gotten a sudden inspiration that the ceiling in the guest bathroom needs a mural. And he does this great, like Robert Pastorelli does this great thing where he physically just goes, hands up, the HUD scandal, hand down, an American disgrace. I love it. (laughs) Only Pastorelli would think of that. So when you say that, was that his physical choice or did you direct him to do that? Oh, yeah. Everything that Pastorelli does is just his. That's all. I step back. I step back when it comes. And Murphy tells him she doesn't want him to paint. It's been a rough night. Besides that, you're a man. And this is another great Robert Pastorelli goes, believe it. The audience goes crazy. As did I. I just typed applause. It's amazing. Believe it. (laughs) Believe it. Believe it. Murphy Delete. marches up the stairs and she kind of ends up in the same spot as as Grant, mm, as Miles yeah. before. Um, she's on the banister and she's declaring to Eldon that she's going to start her own country that is women only. And she's like, it may be one guy to open the jars. Other than that, men are dispensable. Which I just forced a friend, and by forced I mean gifted, a friend to watch Clue for the first time. And, of course, the first thing I thought of with this line was men should be like Kleenex, soft, strong, and disposable. Uh, I love that you just brought Clue into this podcast. I will bring Clue anywhere I can. Madeline Kahn, everywhere. And then she turns to Eldon and really, truly asks him if she's attractive. I love that this is added to the end. You know, it it becomes a, a bigger story now. You know, it's not just, oh, uh, Murphy is uh, trying to date 
the boss, her friend's Mm -hmm. brother, who also is younger than her. It's sort of a notch in the timeline of her life. You know, is is she too old to be attractive to men? Which is something that women of a certain age start to think, even if you're not, because Candace Bergen is beautiful. Um, And it's a very important moment for Murphy. And on any other sitcom, you know, that that part of it, I feel, wouldn't have been added to the end to make it, you know, have even more uh, resonance. I think it really brings home what the show is predicated upon, that she is a woman who is over 40, and we know that they fought for that to stay true, um, that she is single, and she has a career, and she's out in the world. And this moment is kind of harkens back to season one's baby love. Um, her question, mm-hmm. has she missed these landmarks in her in her life, potentially? Has she actually gone over the hill? And and yeah, it's that it's that dramedy element that, that really sets this show apart from the crowd, especially in the 80s. And and then, of course, as Murphy Brown does, we always chase it with a good joke. And mm-hmm. Eldon says, you're okay, but you're no Bridget Nielsen. To which Murphy says, I'll open my own jars. And what I found interesting, so I went and looked at the script. And because I wanted to know if it was written in there as Bridget Nielsen, spelled the way it's supposed to be, or if it actually said Bridget Nielsen. And it does actually say Bridget Nielsen for him. It does not say Brigitte. Like they didn't want Eldon to say it properly. I love that. And she responds with, I'll open my own jars. <laughs> Which is another great line. Great. Great ending. I feel like I it's such a good remember ending. this ending so much sometimes and forget that it's from this episode. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I realized that... Um, Every time I try to open a jar unsuccessfully, I think of this moment. <laughs> yes. Murphy, I'm not going to be able to have my own country with you because I can't open jars. I try. I often cannot. Yes, I will go out of my way to not ask a man to help me open a jar. I will use a knife. I will do the hot water trick. Anything I can before I will ask for help. Yeah. No, I've tried. So, Barnett, is there anything you can think of that we haven't covered? No, that's quite all right. It, no, and it's been a lot of fun talking about this episode. I, you know, as you can tell, I'm just, you know, I, I, I got such a kick out of watching it again and reading it again. And, you know, I just feel like it's a time when everybody's work came together. You know, the writing and the characters and all the work of the first season to build the arc, as you, as you guys so correctly pointed out to this point. And for some real, so many real things to happen. Um, in the life of these characters so amusingly uh, in this episode. It's very special. And I, you guys reminded me about the Tom Shales thing. I don't think I ever saw that at the time. So I'm, I'm very pleased to know that he recognized that. That's great. Oh, yes. I have a quick question for the director. Um, so when you were in the restaurant uh, in Sardella's, um, why did you keep a fifth chair in the foreground of the shot. Like they were a reservation for four. So like, who is the fifth patron that, that we were waiting for? Was that, was that intentional? Oh my God. Well, no, no, that became a look, watch. There's always a fifth chair in the foreground in, in, in the, in the bar scene with um, the three of them with miles and uh, Josh and Murphy. There's a four, there's a fourth chair in the foreground. Uh, and, and that was one of the things I, I started to do on this show that I was very pleased about. Those chairs, by the way, have shortened legs. Ooh. Oh, so it doesn't, so it doesn't so cut off. So that they don't cut oh. off our view of the, of the actors so that the tops of them don't stick into their, into their bodies. Um, but, but 
the reason that I've got them there is if I don't, then if that space is empty, then you see their feet, all the, their, le- their knees all the time. And it reminds you of this fourth, this false fourth wall. This is a play thing. So although, you know, there's no getting away from that, it is a, it is like a play and it is like a proscenium. The fact that there's not, there's not a true reverse shot. I did a lot of four, I would always try to put a foreground thing in there to break it up and definitely to take the curse off of like what, because you know, subjectively, you're not watching people's knees, you're watching their faces. So every time we cut to a wide shot, I don't want to see their legs under the table. I want you focused on them above the waist, unless the joke is the legs, you know, unless they're playing footsie, then I would have done it totally differently. (laughs) So yeah, that's why I did that. You have blown my mind, Barnett. You know, Professor Kelman, I I know you're very busy changing the scope of education as we know it, (laughs) but I really think you have a future as a director. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the nicest thing you could possibly say. And and I'm really looking forward to going back and doing the 13th episode of the reboot of whatever we're calling it, of Murphy Brown. You know, they just started, as we're talking, they just started on Monday. Um, and I, I have had the good fortune and privilege to read that first episode. And all I can say is I know a lot of Murphy fans and new, that are going to be really thrilled and, and a lot of new people are going to discover the show because it really lives up to what you're hoping for. Any thoughts before we let you go? No, it's just it's been a pleasure talking to you guys. And Thank you so much. Oh, same here. All right. Take care. Bye bye. Thank you, Barnett, for joining us. That was amazing. We could have talked much longer than we did. <laughs> yes. We, had, so we wanted to talk about everything because we could actually pick the director's brain, but hopefully we'll get a chance to do that in the future. Yes. So you can follow us on social media on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can leave us a review on iTunes. You can subscribe. Mm-hmm. Subscribe rate. Hey, oh. Yeah. It helps. It's a free way to um, get the podcast out there and to support it. It um, The more reviews and ratings we get, the more visible it is to other listeners. So you can have someone to talk to about the episode you just listened to. Mm-hmm. I do that with all my true crime podcasts. Absolutely. So you got to chat about it. We get to chat with each other. Get somebody to chat with you. If you're looking for us on any of those platforms, every platform, we are Murphy Brown Pod. That is on all the social media, the email at Gmail and the website.com. Great. And we'll see you in two weeks for another episode of FYI, the Murphy Brown Podcast. Mm-hmm.